second here. Oops. To, we're going to continue in Luke um, that couple different sections that I kind of want to look at. It's the kind of, I don't know, sort of sections that kind of combine, kind of separate. Starts in chapter 9. might have to hit the record button. I'm not getting it from here. This section here really begins to focus on the Son of God, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of uh, themes that repeat, but they, they take like a different angle. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. In chapter 8 kind of wrapped up a section that looked at the Word of God, and what I got from that passage was just the significance of the Word of God, how important it is to believe the Word of God. If you don't receive the Word of God, there's nothing left for you. It's, it's like you, it's like you, your meaning, your existence ceases when you disregard and turn away from the Word of God. And it's because the Word of God expresses, and that's His thoughts, His will, and you disregard God's will and disregard the knowledge of who God is, turn away from that. As a created being, when you turn away from your maker, what is left for you? There really is nothing left. No meaning, no purpose, no future, no hope. So that was that talked a lot about the word of God. And now in chapter 9, we start to look at the Son of God and begin to see the significance of the Son of God. Before we we really get started, I want to refresh your memory from Luke chapter 1, when that angel came to Zacharias and brought him the message of his his John, his son John. And Zacharias had a hard time believing it. And the angel responded, when Zacharias expressed his unbelief, the angel responded in Luke 1.19, he says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. And you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And you think about the significance of what just took place there. <clears throat> As Gabriel expresses to Zacharias, he's like, look, it's one thing to have somebody come walk up to you and say, God says this, and to not believe them. I mean, there's lots of people out there, lots of charlatans out there trying to peddle the word of God. And sometimes it can be a little difficult when you see a prophet who's dressed in camel's hair, you know, he doesn't look like a normal person. Like, you know, are you just crazy or are you actually bringing me a word of God? It's a little tough. But you understand, says the angel, I came from the presence of God. Actually, I didn't come from the presence of God. I was sent. God gave me a word and sent me directly to you. I am bringing you a word and you disregard that. You're going to be mute now. This is, to disregard God's word is, you just, <laughs> the angel is like just shaking his head in unbelief. It's like, how, how can you be so stupid to 
disregard the word that I bring you, which came straight from God's throne. And there wasn't any, I mean, this is, I heard God speak. I came down. He sent me, told me to come speak to you. I'm not coming on my own will. God sent the word to you, and you're not believing it. It's just stupid. You're not going to. And so he, as a result, he was not able to speak. <clears throat> just want to bring that to your mind, that angel bringing the word of God. Because now... We're not looking at an angel. We're looking at a man, yes, but it's the Son of God. This is not just an angel that is standing before the throne of God that receives a word directly from God. This is the Son of God who is there at the throne and coming on down. So if the word of an angel is significant, how much more the word of the Son of God. So chapter 9 begins uh, talking about the 12 going out. And that kind of wrapped up the last section. Remember that Jesus told this parable about the four seeds and or the four soils and the, the word of God went out and then there was four stories that paralleled those, those four soils. But then he also told a parable about the light being set up. And so this chapter 9 verses 1 through 6, as the disciples go out, they're like the light that goes out uh, bringing the word of God. Then in verse 7, we get kind of a change of topic, and it talks about Herod. It says that Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I be headed, but who is this whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So we've, and we've gone over this a little bit uh, and marveled at how the people seem more willing to believe that Jesus was one of the prophets risen from the dead, or that he was even John the Baptist risen from the dead, who had been beheaded. That seemed more plausible to them than the reality that Jesus was the Messiah, which is, it's hard to comprehend how they could be so stupid. For to, to They understood, and, and in the, the following story, we've got the feeding of the 5,000, you've got the people there, and uh, they, it says in verse 11 that they followed him, he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and they healed those who had need of healing. And so the, as they follow him, what they're getting is teaching from God. They're getting teaching about the kingdom of God. Uh, presumably that's why they follow. Of course, there's the healing then too. Maybe that was the motivation of why they followed him. And it talks about how there was nothing there and they were hungry and... and uh, the disciples urged the Lord to send the multitude away because there was no food in the area, but, but he turns around and he begins to give them food. And uh, they ate and fed, they were eaten and filled, and then they left. And then it says in verse 18, it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because remember the twelve had been out preaching. So who had they been, what had they been telling the crowds? And Peter answered and said, well, we said that you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. The Hebrew Messiah. Uh, we've been telling them that you're the Messiah. They've been following you and they, they recognize that you were a man of God, that you were a great man of God, equivalent to one of the old prophets or maybe even John the Baptist that these men that we look back in history and history has confirmed that they are men of God, that when they, they spoke, they brought the words of God, they prophesied truth. You're like one of those men of God and they recognize that. 
But so they don't, they're not, the crowds aren't saying, well, this Jesus fella, he's, you know, he's kind of loony. He can do some crazy, he can do some amazing miracles, but some of the stuff he says, you just got to take it with a grain of salt. You can't believe it. No, they weren't saying that. They were saying, this guy preaches the word of God. He preaches, talks to us about the kingdom of God. He's like one of the old prophets who spoke truth. We understand and realize that this is a godly man who has some insight into the truth. Then why don't they believe that he's Messiah? Why do they think that he's a liar and saying that he is come from God, that he's not uh, that he's not a mere man, but that he is the Messiah. The disciples go out and tell everybody that he's the Messiah. Why do they find it more plausible to believe that he is a prophet risen from the dead than to believe that he's the Messiah come from heaven? And the earlier part of Luke has kind of revealed why they have had such difficulty. It's He didn't match what they expected the Messiah would look like, and they couldn't get past that. <clears throat> so Luke presents this to us the, the people's unwillingness to believe that he is the Messiah the rejection of that claim and then he tells us of how the Lord Jesus warned them in verse 21 that they should not tell this to anyone it's time for the light to go out it's, it's going to go dark here they, they've rejected the truth and so we're not going to tell them he says but Uh, but he says in verse 22 the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day their ignorance they would crucify him so he wasn't blinding them out of spite to get back at them because they rejected his command okay you're not going to believe me then you're not going to see no it's not going to be like that he's blinding them to open the door for his pathway to go to the cross in order to provide for them salvation. And then he says to the disciples, if anyone, in verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. I tell you truly that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. He says, look, if you want to follow after me, he he sets the bar high or low, depending on how you look at it. Like you, You essentially have to give up your life in order to follow the Lord. There is, and he calls them to do that. He says, look, it's, it's the only thing that makes sense to follow after me. You give up your entire life to follow after me. And initially when you look at that, you say, well, how does that even make sense? You know, to, to die to my own life. This life, I mean, like, uh, what, what sort of cause is worthy enough for me to give up my entire life? And so he shows them, he tells them that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And then we go into this account of how he is transfigured on top of the mountain. And Luke tells how his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And then it talks, it mentions in verse 30, he says, There was two men who talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
And then it talks about the, the confusion of Peter and those who are with him trying to figure out how to make sense of this, this glory that they see and Moses and Elijah there and, and this is incredible. And Peter even says, look, Lord, I mean, Moses and Elijah are two greatest prophets. You are at least equal to them. We should have three tabernacles for you. He would have done better, of course, to say, we'll make one tabernacle for you and Moses and Elijah can be your doorkeepers or your gatekeepers and be your servant. That, that would be more appropriate. But you just... So the Lord, so Luke uh, brings before us, and the Lord shows them that it does make sense to give up your life for the Lord Jesus. That He is, uh, He is everything with regards to life. So what if you lose your life while here on this planet? It is only a. It's like I said. It's a. It's a long life, but it goes by fast. It's a long week, but it goes by fast. Uh, it's a, a blink of the eye. It's like a vapor of smoke, and then it's gone. What the Lord offers for those who give up their lives and follow after him is something worth considering. Look at what happened to Moses and Elijah. These were two men who gave up their lives to follow the Lord. Moses, when he was 40, he fled. He actually kind of lost his life. Everything that he knew, he knew, he was driven out of the palace, he was driven out of Egypt, he was driven into the wilderness. And for 40 years he spent time doing nothing. And somewhere after that, after that 40 years, when he was 80 years old, he, he gave up his life to do whatever God commanded him to do. He was kind of unwilling. <laughs> the Lord called him to go speak to Pharaoh and he said no, but eventually he went and did it. And he gave up the next 40 years of his life to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. Elijah gave up his life when he went and brought the word of God to Ahab, and Ahab uh, turned against him, and, and Elijah spent the rest of his time hiding out by a, a brook. And we look at Elijah and we say, well, what a marvelous time that must have been for him to be there by the brook and have the ravens. No, it wasn't a marvelous time. He was hiding so that he wouldn't die. He was away from any of his relatives, his family, his friends. He was isolated by himself. He didn't dare come into town to buy supplies. He was Every time somebody came walking by that particular brook, he was crawling under a bush to keep himself hidden. And as he got hungry, uh, he would drink water to keep himself alive. But then the ravens would come, the Lord provided. I mean, it was, it was not a fun time. He gave up his life. And now you see these two men... And consider this because this is, I think what the, I think what is presented before us is a, a snapshot into what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And look what it looks like. You have Moses and Elijah having the same glory as the Lord Jesus. So much so that when Peter looked at them, to him they looked like equals. That's mind blowing. Why would the Lord, why would our Creator take His creatures and make, give them the same glory that he himself has. Sharing, obviously our glory is not going to be as great as the Lord's, but enough so that when they looked at him, it was the three were together. And see what they're doing. Two men talked with him. It was a discussion. They were discussing uh, what my translation calls his decease, which he was about to accomplish, which is very funny wordage. You don't accomplish a death. Yeah, it happens. You you get that gets put upon you. Actually, the word is exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, which makes a bit more sense. 
his departure, and they were talking about it. It wasn't the Lord was lecturing them, telling them what was going to take place. They were actually, apparently, discussing it. Now, this is the Lord of heaven who created all things, discussing with six feet of clay, form clay, now glorified. It's like the Lord, I mean, to me, like you just imagine the marvel of the Creator, the Lord Jesus, talking with His people about the things that He's about, that He's that He's going to do, that He's going to accomplish. And of course, these men were appropriate. Moses knew something about an Exodus. He knew what it was like to leave. Elijah knew what it was like to be rejected by the entire country. Elijah was so despised by the country that he found no place to find refuge. He had to go outside the country, up to the north into Sidonia, I think, uh, and and live with a widow who was a Gentile. He was completely... And so it kind of makes sense that the Lord is going to talk to these... You know, sometimes when we're going through an experience or we know we're about to go through an experience, uh, we find it, and it's going to be difficult, or say we're going through a difficult experience, we find it helpful sometimes to go talk to somebody who's gone through a similar experience and not so much that they're going to give us pointers necessarily, but it is kind of a sharing of the of the load, so to speak. It looks to me like that's what the Lord is doing. He is talking to a couple of men who can identify with what he is about to go through and sharing the load, so to speak. That's the kingdom of God. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Apparently, that's it. It's where the people of God will be glorified and the Son of God will be speaking with the people of God regarding the things that he is about to do or that he wants to accomplish because they can identify with him. And they're sharing in that kind of experience. It's it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And this is what the Lord offers. He says, you give up your life here on earth And this is what you will receive in that day, in the kingdom of God. Moses and Elijah, having given up their lives, they are now able to speak with the Lord Jesus regarding the things that he was about to accomplish. Now the Lord said in verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of of him the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his own glory and his Father's and his holy angels. So there's a big contrast. Either you will give up your life and the Lord will speak with you or you're ashamed of him and he will be ashamed of you. So we get a a view of what what the Lord's intent is, what his purpose is, what he he desires to accomplish as as he saves people, what he is looking to do with them when he brings the kingdom and everything is accomplished and all is where he intends it to be. And then you come to verse 37, and it happens on the next day, he comes down from the mountain, you got this guy, he says, Teacher, I employ you, look on my son, he's my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. I suppose today we should classify that as epilepsy, but apparently they... There was something about this that made them realize that there was a spirit involved in this. And uh, it happened since he was a young child. Luke, and, and then the Lord Jesus says something that is 
quite unexpected in verse 41, I would think. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. I wouldn't expect the Lord to have that kind of response when somebody comes up looking for healing. You're so faithless and you're such a crooked a crooked generation. I just can't hardly stand being with you. It's, it's, it's a burden to be around you. Now Luke doesn't give us much of a hint as to what brought that response. Some of the other Gospels talk about how the Father didn't have the faith. Some of the Gospels talk about the disciples maybe didn't have the faith. But Luke doesn't tell us any of that. He just presents to us the burden of the Lord to be around this crooked and perverse generation. Here the Son of God who has come from heaven, he is bringing, he is preaching to them the words of God. He is, he is carrying to them the marvelous truth straight from the throne of God. The, he's the glorious one. He's the, the one at the throne. And he says, to be with you, it's like a burden. You just, how long do I got to put up with you? And that's a, that's a really scary word because if, if an angel finds Zacharias burdensome because Zacharias won't believe his word and Zacharias has struck mute, then what is it going to be to these people who have been confronted by the Son of God, heard his word, rejected it, rejected him, and he finds them burdensome? So you've got a big contrast between what the Lord intends to do with his people in the kingdom of God and what was happening as the people were rejecting his claim of who he was. And it's kind of goofy because in verse 43, they were all amazed at the majesty of God. They were like, wow, this guy can do all kinds of miracles, but they're not believing that he's the Messiah. While everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the same. The, the Lord's comments here are uh, astonishing because of the, the perspective from which he speaks them. He's talking about being betrayed into the hands of men, so that they're going to do to him whatever they want to do. You know, when you're the Lord of all, people don't do to you whatever you, they want to do. It just, it just isn't, you don't, you don't, I mean, there's, uh, these days, you know, our president, and it doesn't matter which one it is or which side of the fence he comes from, he's always hated by the other side. I mean, there's real hatred on the other side of the fence. And there's lots of people who would love to do certain things to the president that they're being prevented from doing. You can't do that. I mean, he's the president. You don't don't go just do whatever you want to do to the president. You don't do whatever you want to do to the guy that's at the top of the land. But you see the Lord Jesus is saying, yeah, that's what's going to happen, is that they're going to betray me, and they're going to do whatever they want. Like, he's he's taking the position of someone who is really low. The bottom of the heap, the bottom of the totem pole. He's the bottom of society. They're going to do to him whatever he wants to do. This is the Lord of heaven. He's not... 
It's such a different response from what the angel did. And the angel struck that guy, struck Zacharias mute because he wouldn't receive Jesus. He says, well, they won't receive my, my word. I am going to move down lower to a position where they can do whatever they want to me. The contrast to that, then, is so stark in verse 46. A dispute rose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And when the Lord has just revealed that he is going to be the lowest, the hearts of mankind are so distorted, so you can see why this is such a burden to the Lord to find these people who are always trying to climb up on top of each other, trying to reach the highest point. If you're going to follow after me, he said, you've got to take the lowest spot. And so Jesus, to correct their thinking, he says, perceiving the thought of their heart, he took a little child and set him by him. And he said to him, whoever receives this little child of my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. It's not about you and your position. It's me. You receive even a little child with my name. You will be doing well. You'll be doing good. It doesn't matter where you're at. It's my name that is significant, is what he's saying here. And then they've got this little question about somebody who's casting out demons with the name of the Lord Jesus, but he's not part of their group. And Jesus said, do not forbid him. He was not against us, is on our side. That's the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not given to just one particular group, and these people have the name of the Lord Jesus. Because that's the way it was with the Israelites. When they were made a nation, God put his name upon them. They were the people of God. If you wanted to be the people of God, you had to become a Jew. That was the only way. No, uh, but it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be that the name of the Lord Jesus is put on a particular group and they become the people of God. No, it's the name of the Lord Jesus. Whoever attaches themselves to the name of the Lord Jesus, whether they're of the original 12 or whether they're of somebody else, it's the Lord Jesus that is the key. Because he would take the lowest place. And so that's the first half. It, it describes the people's response to Lord Jesus, their rejection of him, and establishes the reality of his position that he is high above the heavens, and yet he is taking the lowest place. And then you come to the, the watershed point of the book. It came to pass in verse 51 that when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from here on out, the book is, is broken up by sections of his journey as he heads to Jerusalem, each section. And yet, this, it's... Uh, Uh, this section, or this, this portion, continues on, seems like, until verse 37 of chapter 10. Now watch what happens here. So he's, uh, he's going to send messengers in verse 52. He's going to send messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went to another village. So here he's faced with rejection. This time it's not of the people of Israel, it's of the Samaritans, who were half-breeds, so to speak. 
And James and John wanted to command fire down on them because they were rejecting the Lord Jesus. And the Lord said, no, you are... You, need, you are of the complete wrong spirit. You don't understand the heart, my heart, the heart of the Son of Man, my spirit, what I intend, my purpose. My purpose is not to destroy men's lives, but to save men. It's, it's kind of a, what we saw in the last part where the Lord, it faced with the rejection and the burden of the rejection of the people and the burden of being with them does not move to destroy them, but he moves to save them, take the lowest place that he might save them. So this kind of summarizes and culminizes that spirit of the Lord high above, yet taking the lowest place. Now, verse 57 uh, pops a new paragraph in there. It happened as they journeyed on the way that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But then, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. These things that the Lord says, again, are astonishing, jaw-dropping. It's it's hard to grasp and understand what he is driving at. <clears throat> and yet, we understand that he's talking about following after him. This is what it takes to follow after me. Uh, he's called a couple of people to follow him. There's one guy, he's called one guy to follow after him. Another guy volunteers to follow after him. Another says, I will follow after you. So it's about following him. The last half of this section talked about following after the Lord. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it. And in that passage, he talked about the honor of those who would follow after him in chapter 9. But now he begins to describe almost like what it actually means in a practical daily sense to follow after him. But he's not so much just this is what you do, but it's the spirit of it. What is it? What is the motive Behind, what is the heart of the person who wants to follow after the Lord? What heart does it take? And he gives us three different elements. The first one in verse 58, it says that foxes have holes of the air and bird, or <laughs> foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is, and he's describing how animals, they have their little place that they live. The fox will crawl into his den in the ground and the bird has its little nest in the tree. But he says, the son of man, I don't have, I'm not, uh, I'm not establishing a place for me to live here on earth. There is no home for me on earth. This is, the purpose for his life goes beyond this temporal planet. And so the servant of God who wants to follow after God is going to be one who looks at this earth as temporal. So when he talks about giving up life, he's talking about giving up your life, the, the uh, American dream, so to speak. Where you go to establish your life, you try to find yourself a good house, and you build yourself a, a beautiful place, get yourself nice and comfortable here on this earth. That goes for someone who's going to follow after the Lord. The Son of Man does not have a house established. He's, he's looking beyond this earth to a different home. Same like Moses did. Moses didn't look at the palace. He was established there, but he gave that up and he took the wilderness uh, because he was looking forward to the time when God would bring his people home. 
The second part, he says something really astonishing. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And I thought about this for a long time, trying to make sense of it. And it finally re- I finally realized that, her, I mean, this is kind of where I, where I came to, is that when you go to bury somebody, uh, typically what happens is we've got somebody that dies, and it's somebody that's special to us, and so we want to do something to memorialize them, to, to keep their memory so we don't forget about them. So we'll, we will, and we'll do things to show that we honor these, that we've honored these people, that they are, or we'll do things to honor these people to show how much we value them and, and respect them. We'll find them a nice coffin. We'll get them a nice headstone so that we never forget. We'll get them a nice spot and we'll get a lot of different things that go into doing a proper burial to show your appreciation of the person that has passed away and to establish your memory so that you don't forget. We talked a little bit about how they would wrap bodies and they put the spices on them and everything else that the Jews would do back in the day. And they would have these caves hollowed out and there's stone rolled in front of the cave and all these different things that they would do to properly bury a person. Jesus is saying, these social norms where you go to, you know, this is all these different things that you can do to show how much you appreciate your audience. It's like, no. If you have a person that dies and you're the only one there to bury that person, you grab a shovel, dig a hole, dump them in, cover them up, and go on. This this norm of establish a memorial of of all the different work that no the we're not here to set something up on this planet as if they'll be you know, if they're forgotten on this planet they're forgotten forever. We're, no, the, the servant of God has an entirely different focus, an entirely different. The son of God had an entirely different focus. He didn't. He didn't care about building up a memorial to remember John the Baptist by. He let John the Baptist die in prison, to be beheaded. They took his body and buried it someplace. And the Lord Jesus didn't build a memorial for him. It, that wasn't his focus. His focus was to go out and to see people get saved. And that's what the servant of God will do. When Moses' brother died on top of the mountain, they buried him and went on. Uh, they didn't build a big shrine for Aaron, the first high priest. They didn't try to memorialize him. They just went, and that wasn't their focus. Let the dead who were consumed with... Uh, I mean, what do the dead care when somebody dies? The third element, uh, Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can imagine a teenager who is uh, knows it's his job to go out and plow the field. And so he gets up and he's like, all right, I'm going to go do it. And he starts plowing the field. And he makes one or two passes behind that behind the uh, the oxen as he's going up and uh, running that plow through the sod. And it's hot out and it's sturdy and it's dusty and and as he makes that third pass, he looks over and he sees that hammock underneath the shade of the tree right beside the well. And it's just like, oh, man, maybe just a couple minutes. And as he's plowing along, looking back at that tree and the plow's going this way and that way, and it was just, his attention is distracted. He's like, you know, when he started, he had a great intention. I'm going to go plow this field like Dad wanted me to do. But halfway through, he's like, oh, man, that hammock looks so nice in that shade of the tree. He's not fit to plow the field. 
When you're going to plow the field, you've got to stay focused until the whole job is done. That's what the Lord is talking about. When somebody goes out and they start to serve, and it, and it, and it gets hard, and it's like, man, it would be nice to just kind of put my feet up for a while. And, you know, these people, they get to drive nice new cars, or, or they got they get to go to Disneyland, or they get to, you know, all these different fun things. And, and Except for the Lord says something funny. He's not fit for the, he doesn't say he's not fit for the work of the kingdom of God. He says he's not fit for the kingdom of God. To enter into that glory, to enter into that identification of the sufferings of the Lord. The heart of the Lord and the service of the Lord, what it means to follow the Lord. It doesn't look like we're going to get to the end of the section here, but let's put a little bit more. Chapter 10, it talks about how the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he talks about the harvest and all so forth. You know, the, the last section talked about the men going out, uh, or it came on the tail end of the 12 apostles as they went out. And here, as he sends them out, he doesn't give them anything. They don't have a chariot to ride in. They don't have... A, a litter to be carried in and servants that are carrying him through. He gives them, he says, carry neither money bag nor knapsack nor sandals nor greet anyone along the road. And whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if you're, and if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for laborers where you, you know, just whatever they give you, you'd be satisfied and be content with that. You don't be looking to put yourself up into a better place. And he says, but what he does give them in verse 9, heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you bring the word of the kingdom, that same gospel that the Lord Jesus was preaching, and you got that the ability to heal the sick. So he sends them off in his name with his authority. If a city disregards the word that they bring. Okay, so no, it's one thing if, if you did, we talked about how if you disregard the word of an angel who came from the throne of God, that's one, that's very serious, that's one thing. If you disregard the Son of God, that's much more serious. But here you have one of the men, just a man. This isn't an angel. This is a man who's been sent out by the Lord Jesus and he's preaching the word of God. Uh, what difference does it make if you listen to him or not? And he tells them, verse 10, Whatever city you enter and they do not receive, you go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you state that they've turned, disregarded your word. And then he says, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day, in that day, speaking of the day of judgment, be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Apparently it's a big deal if you disregard these men, this men's words. They're sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Notice how the Lord makes the reference to Sodom. Sodom was that city that's infamous because of the brimstone and fire that came down from heaven and destroyed the city which is the very thing that the disciples told the Lord Jesus that they should do to the city of Samaria. Let's call down fire on the city. And the Lord said, no, that's the wrong spirit. Now the Lord says, actually, yes, that will happen in that day. Brimstone and fire will come upon them. And he continues, Woe to you, Koretz, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty things which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be no more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. 
He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It is exceedingly serious for people to reject the words of the servants of God, though they be but men. They are sent by the Son of God. In that day, their judgment will will be horrendous. Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than these cities when they are judged. Why is it so important? Because these men are sent by the Son of God. So to reject these men is to reject the Son of God, and to reject the Son of God is to reject the Father who sent him. So again, in the last part, he talked about the people and their rejection of him. But in the last part, he mentioned that he would uh, give himself over to whatever they wanted, submit himself to whatever they wanted to do to him. Now in this part, he talks about their rejection, and he says that their rejection is going to lead to a judgment that is absolutely astonishing in its extent. That today the Son of God would submit to their hands, but in that day, their their hatred of him, their rejection of him, would be recompensed upon their head. Just a little brief overview of what's, I guess we just, there's such a little bit to go over next. Uh, in verses 17 through 20, that 70 return, and they are they're super excited because they have the ability over demons. They can cast out the demons. And Jesus says, yeah, I saw Satan cast out of heaven. This is such a contrast to the, the man who came to get his son, get the demon cast out of his son, and they were not able to cast out the demon at that time. Now they are able to cast out the demons. And they find that the demons pose them no trouble. And the Lord talks about how Satan fell. And it seems that the reason that Satan fell was because the word of truth is being preached by these men as they go out and preach that that word has undermined Satan's ability to stand up uh, against the purposes of God. And then in verse 21, it talks about how the Lord Jesus rejoices in the spirit. And he says, you know, you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, revealed them to babes. This is such a contrast then to the Lord Jesus as he stands there in the face of these men uh, who don't believe him. And it's such a burden to him. How long am I going to bear with you, he says. And now he is rejoicing. You, it's, but here he's rejoicing about babes, people who are low in their own sight. They're not trying to be the greatest. They're low in their own sight. And, and God is revealing to them the truth in contrast to the ones who they think they are something. They think they do have some kind of measure up against the Son of God. And, and the truth was not being revealed to them. The disciples didn't understand his word that he mentioned about the Son of Man being betrayed into the hands of men. But now in this part, in verse 23, he says, Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. I tell you, many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and hear what you hear and have heard it and have not heard it. Now they do see and they do understand. They, 
And it's interesting, we don't really have time to think about what the difference is between what they couldn't see there and they couldn't see his purpose, but here they could see who he was. And then finally the section closes with a story, the parable that the Lord Jesus tells, that famous one about the Good Samaritan. And turns out that this story is, he's describing himself as the Good Samaritan. In the Samaritans being the outcast, the despised of society, that fits the Lord Jesus exactly, it's who he was. But the Samaritans saved men's lives, which is what the Lord Jesus was about, to take care of this man. This story is a, a revelation of the glory of the Lord Jesus, much like the Mount of Transfiguration was a revelation of his glory. But this is a whole different kind of glory of his humility and of his determination and willingness to save those who are uh, beaten and broken and lying by the side of the road and left for dead. The, uh, the imagery here seems so complex as Luke tries to portray for us, or the Spirit of God through Luke portrays for us an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why it is that he is so significant, you reject the Lord Jesus and you are rejected. He came to save, but he will judge. Uh, his desire is to save, but those who reject him uh, will be judged. And there's a lot of different, because there's so many different, you know, this section here seems to be divided into two parts, and it hinges on verse 51. And the parts, there's so many different parallel thoughts here. There's a lot of time that should be spent thinking about each component that relates to each other and comparing and contrasting. We just, we just don't have the time to really talk about it, but they're, to understand the heart of the Savior, the position of the Savior, the purpose of the Savior, his intent, what he will accomplish. And you begin to see how truly he is the center of everything. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you and just ask that you would help us in our blindness to be, begin to comprehend and understand and appreciate the richness of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his beauties. This one thing we do understand, that he did come for sinners and he did find us by the side of the road broken and he has saved us, brought us into life. And we just thank you for his mercies that he has shown and we praise you for what he, what, what you will accomplish, what he will accomplish in us to cleanse and purify and bring before him a glorious church who dwells with him in that day in the kingdom. And just thank you for the greatness of your grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.